0: Um, I want to draw your attention to the back of the packet tonight, where the bibliography is listed. I have bolded uh, one resource in particular: um, "A Systematic Theology" by Louis Burkhoff, which is where the vast majority of the packet comes from tonight. Um, so, Louis Burkhoff, which many of you w- probably won't have heard of um, before, he uh, and mainly because his "The Systematic Theology" you can see was written in 1938. Um, Many of you have heard of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, which is also on this list. Um, Most of the Systematic Theologies written after 1938 are based on Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology written in 1938. That's how good it is. Now, that being said, because it's 1938, a lot of the words that are going to be used therein may sound a little bit like Lord of the Rings you know, <laughs> may have a lot of the, the verse references are going to be in the King James, a lot of these and vows and yees and things like that. So there's some language that we probably don't use now that uh, he uses back then because just uh, a little bit dated in that sense. But the content of the, the systematic theology, I'll actually like his better than Wayne Grudem's, though Grudem's is more accessible and easier to read. So if you're going to only read one, I would probably say Grudem's you're going to be able to access a little bit better, I think. But Burkhoff's, the way he organizes thought is, I, is, I think, better. But he, he's very good, and I just want to draw your attention to it. Most of tonight's uh, uh, packet and information comes from that systematic theology, and I, I find it really helpful. Um, so we've been going through and trying to really do an um, analysis on salvation itself. Just sort of tear it apart and uh, understand where it comes from and, and how it is that we're saved. And this is not, I hope you understand, this is not uh, trying to overthink things at all. Um, I don't think anyway. This is not uh, really trying to, trying to put God in a box or say that, the, you know, that whatever may be the critique about different kinds of exercises like this. What we're really attempting to do is understand what the Bible says about salvation itself. And what that, in the end, gives us is not just an understanding of us, but an understanding of God and who He is, how He's ordered the world, how He's arranged it. And that ends up changing everything about church about the way you relate to each other, about the way you understand your relationship with Christ. It changes everything about even the structure and nature of the church you're in, you understand. There's a reason that we do the things that we do in worship and that we don't do some other things that you might see at other churches. And a lot of it stems from this. It it, it does change everything. I I do think two people about salvation can disagree on some very key issues and still both be Christians, be brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, and and, and be able to say that they share a mutual faith on the basis of the Gospels. However, their experience of God, their understanding of God, their experience with their own churches, what kinds of things they're looking for in churches, things like that, will differ drastically because of how they understand this. You understand that the vast majority of disagreements um, over preaching styles or over content of sermons or over what is in a worship service, the, the disagreements and the divisions that exist in churches, that have existed in this church and, and in other churches, but that exist in churches, boils down really to this. So I know you don't, when you first look at it, and when we're going through it, you probably don't think about that. And you probably don't go, well, all of this is connected to to this one central fact. But trust me when I say it is. Fundamentally, this changes everything about the way you experience faith itself. And I think naturally, we do kind of sense that. Because when we encounter scriptures that tell us some of these things plainly, that are very hard to accept, we have a natural tendency to push back on it in spite of all the passages of Scripture that tell us that it's true. And so I think, to some degree, we, we sense how important this is, and I'm not trying to hide how important it is. I don't want you to hear me say, well, we, two people can disagree, therefore it's not important. On the contrary, it is very important. And, and I will argue to my, to my dying breath uh, of its importance. But I do recognize that there will be people that disagree with me and we can disagree on scriptural grounds, the one thing that I would ask is that you actually be able to walk through your understanding of salvation in the scripture itself. Not in philosophy, not in backing up and saying, well, why would a God? Well, how I couldn't believe in a God who... No, 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 no. Let's ground it in scripture. Let's walk through the Bible and show me your understanding of salvation. That would be the one thing that I would ask. I think that's the minimum requirement for any Christian. So as we've gone through this, we've seen a couple of things right out of the gate. First of all, we're sinners, right? We, that is very clear as we've taken apart salvation and we've seen from all, from all these different facets, the Bible clearly explains you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but not just because you have committed sin, but because you're born that way. In Adam all die, Paul says. So you, you were guilty before you were ever even born. Um, and so guilty that you were held to the punishment that Adam was held under. And as such, we needed a Savior, Jesus Christ. He was the only one that fit the bill, one, because he was fully man. And so he could actually fulfill the things man was commanded to do. But man couldn't accomplish that. So he also had to be truly and fully God in order to be able to accomplish all of that. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week, uh, but... Suffice it to say, Jesus fulfills Adam's role. He actually accomplishes Adam's role, being uniquely a, the God-man, and he's the head over new creation. And anyone that wants to be newly created has to be born of the Spirit of God. That's the only way to be newly created, is God has to newly create you. So He has to be the one to do it. And he does that by giving you of the Spirit, opening your eyes to salvation and the like. Um, And so what we say then about new birth is that it's monergistic, meaning God alone works in the process of regeneration or new birth. And um, what that means then is that in regeneration, in new birth, man is totally passive in that act. God is alone, can give the spirit, change out the heart. He alone does that. And we haven't spent too much time on this, um, but... Essentially, what we see in the New Testament is that that Jesus even says, the new covenant is being brought by me. It's secured in my blood, right? I'm I'm bringing the new covenant. It's when he holds up the cup at the Last Supper, you remember this, and he says, is the new covenant in my blood. It's secured, the new covenant is secured by Jesus' blood. His death on the cross, in other words. It's secured. It's done. What is the new covenant? The new covenant is promised in the Old Testament, right? And the new covenant is... I, God speaking, I am going to change out your heart, right? And Jesus says, that changed out, that new covenant, I've accomplished it in my blood. So it was all accomplished on the cross. The whole new covenant was done there sealed. Okay, so it's monergistic, meaning God works alone in that act. Man is acted upon. And so uh, while the general call of the gospel is, uh, is and can be resisted by sinful humanity, it's resisted all the time, the effectual or internal call uh, of God is God's sovereign, creative, irresistible voice that opens the eyes of the blind heart, opens the ears of the deaf heart, and causes Christ to appear as supremely valuable as the supremely val- valuable Savior that He really is. So what we're saying there is that in that, in that process, what regeneration or new birth is, is something we also refer to as the effectual call of God. There's a general call of the gospel. Preachers give it all the time and have given it for 2,000 years. Uh, in fact, even in the Old Testament, they've been giving it. You know, repent, turn from your wicked ways. and You know, just a call that we give every Sunday here. And that call can and is resisted all the time by people. What we're saying about the effectual call Is that there are times when that gospel is preached where God overcomes that natural obstinacy and brings the sinner to repentance? And Jesus is very clear in John 6, both in verse 38 and 44, or 37 and 44, 37 or 38 and 44 uh, of John 6, that first of all, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. Second, All that the Father draws comes. So he's very clear on that. And he just says, look, no one can come unless God draws them. And 100% of the people God draws comes. So, there you have it, right? So that effectual call, that internal call of the gospel is something different than just the broad call, though that internal or effectual call happens as a result of the preaching of the gospel. Same preaching of the gospel. Two people hearing it completely different. So, As we think about those things, we've talked about regeneration, that's what we dealt with last week, but now we're kind of transitioning a little bit. We've been talking a lot about what all happens behind the curtain, what all has happened without our even understanding or knowledge of, right? Before we were born, Adam sinned, and we're guilty of it, so like all that's before we were ever even conceived of. There's an effectual call, an internal call. We didn't even realize was happening, that God reached into the dark recesses of our heart and pulled us to Himself. We didn't even think about that. Um, and it happened just beyond our consciousness. Now we're moving into what happens in space and time. What happens in the here and now? How do I experience that act of salvation? How, how am I, like, saved in my everyday experience? What is that like, and how do I explain it? How am I even to understand what's actually happening to me in that moment, okay? So we call that conversion, and we're going to talk about that tonight. So as we've seen, the Bible speaks in absolute terms of the necessity of regeneration. That's John 3, 3, uh, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of, of heaven. Uh, no one enters the kingdom of God except if you be born again. But regeneration and conversion are often used synonymously, but they generally refer to different, though closely related, things. So, so we're going to separate regeneration and conversion just slightly. There, there is a... a reasonable amount of difference between someone being regenerate and someone being converted. They, they are closely linked, but they're just a little bit different, and they refer to slightly different things, so we're going to deal with that. Regeneration, this next blank, regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit to unite the elect sinner to Christ by breathing new life into him so as to raise him from spiritual death to spiritual life, removing his heart of stone, giving him a heart of flesh, so that he is washed and born from above as a new creation. That's how we defined it a couple of weeks ago in week six. That's a, I've literally lifted that straight from that packet and put it right here. Regeneration is that work of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about someone being born again, someone being regenerate, someone, uh, there's a number of different names for that. But basically when we talk about that, what we're saying there is that the Holy Spirit has done something supernatural to him or her, overcoming any obstinacy and pulling them to himself. This is this has been a complete eye-opening experience for them in their heart. This is something that the Spirit has done through even no understanding of their own. Look at Deuteronomy uh, 29, 2 and f- 2 to 4 here. I'm going to read some of these, let me pull this apart. And Moses summoned all of Israel to them. Uh, you, have all, uh, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all of his servants and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, those uh, great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Um, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So he, he, he's pretty clear they've got to have something that the Lord has to supply. He's got to do that to them, or none of this is going to make any sense to them. Uh, God's going to have to be the actor. What we find out so that's Moses, that's Deuteronomy. Years later, we get to the prophets after a whole heap in history of Israel has gone from, from Egypt. Now into the promised land and getting ready to head into exile, they're being told the words of Moses have not yet been fulfilled. The words of Moses are still to come. And Jeremiah sort of puts some flesh uh, on these, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah 31:33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Uh, next one, I'll give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. They may not turn away from me. Ezekiel, I will give them a one heart and a new spirit. I will put within them. I will remove their heart of stone their, uh, from their heart, from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. They shall be my people. I will be their God. Um, look at uh, the next one in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful, to obey my rules. So they're promising God is going to do a work in the new covenant, which, as I said, Jesus in his last supper tells them, this is the new covenant. It's in my blood. When I shed it, this is what's going to be accomplished. God is going to do this uh, act, this, you know, magic act, if you will, supernatural act of exchanging your heart of stone for a heart of flesh. That's what God is going to do. Um, So this, my blood secures that, essentially. And so um, that is what we refer to as the work of regeneration, is this supernatural act that God does. The Holy Spirit uh, uh, unites the elect sinner to Christ and breathes new life into him. This is what causes you to be a new creation because you're born of the Spirit now. All right, so conversion, however, is a change that is rooted in the work of regeneration, and that's, uh, that is affected in the conscious life of the sinner by the Spirit of God. So, um, oh, let me finish reading. A change of thoughts and opinions, of desires and volitions, which involves the conviction that the former direction of life was unwise and wrong and alters the entire course of life. Do you see what he's saying here? What's what's going on here? The the new birth or that regeneration is what happens first. The spirit comes in and whammo! Changes the heart. The conversion is what follows right on the heels of that where the person's desires now change. Their opinions, their thoughts now change. They have an entirely different outlook, and they start to look back at the previous life and go, that was really dumb, the things that I was thinking and doing and acting in back then. And we could be talking days apart, right? Minutes apart, seconds apart. The person goes, oh my goodness, what this guy is saying up here at the pulpit or wherever is true. And I I get that. And now I'm looking back at all the things that I used to think and I'm like, what was I thinking? That is, that's sin. That's awful. And so now they actually begin to have vocabulary for that. That's not just dumb. That's sinful. It actually is a transgression against God. It heaps up all of those reasons that I stand guilty if judged. Right? This is what we mean by conversion. So, let me, let me back up a second and say, how different are these things in the mind of God? Maybe not that different, but they're, they're different enough for us in that they help us to understand the different ways Scripture talks about someone being saved or the need for someone to be saved. And so what, you, what happens then is as you read Scripture, you begin, as you think about these categories of where people are, and you start to read Scripture, it starts to make a ton of sense of the way the authors describe someone coming to salvation, right? And this is where we see it most often. Kind of, it's, it rarely, you don't really see Paul going, okay, this is what new birth is. Now, this is what conversion is. He doesn't really do that as much as it is when they explain how someone comes to salvation. And you go, oh, that's why they're doing that is because there's a new birth that the Spirit grants and then following right on the heels of that is someone's converted and begins to understand these things, these things that the, the Spirit is illuminating for them. So that it moves from the unconscious, that regeneration, to the conscious. Now you're actually aware of it. Oh, goodness, this is what the Spirit has done. Look at um, Luke 19, 8-9. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor... And, I have de- and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. John 9, 38. He said, Lord, I believe. And what did he do? Worshipped him. So it, it changed his actions. But it's probably most clear in a couple of these uh, actions here. First, Paul's testimony, and then the Lydia's. And he said, you know, This is Acts 9, 5 to 9. And he said, "Who are you, Lord, that Saul of Tarsus says that?" He says, "Who are you, Lord?" and he said, "I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do." The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. They led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For and for 3 days He was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Then move down to 15. There's a conversation with Ananias that happens in between here, but we're going to move to the Paul part. But the Lord said to him, Go, as he's talking to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Uh, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to, uh, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at, at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And he was not to, he, uh, and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So there's, in Saul, we see a illumination of who, of Jesus, not quite sure where he is before Ananias comes to him, but it seems as though he is in fear at this moment, blind, doesn't eat or doesn't drink, doesn't want to really talk to anybody. Is just, my, my image of him is in a corner of a room shaking in terror, right, at what he's seen. Ananias comes in, lays hands on him and prays, he understands. So he's had illumination. He understands the Holy Spirit comes upon him and immediately things change now, right? There's a conversion that happens on the after side. Now for Paul, it's a little more obvious that Jesus has shown up to him on the, on the street. But here in Luke's, in Acts 16, Luke makes it explicit a little bit more explicit with Lydia. And uh, one who heard uh, us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her whole household and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Her. So here's Lydia, who is a God-fearer, there's nobody in the city that is, that is... There's not enough people in the city to actually form a synagogue. So her and these ladies are outside the city. And there is a work that takes place when Paul is preaching where the Lord opens, li- tunes Lydia's attention into the gospel. His intention is to save her. He tunes her attention into the gospel. She hears the gospel. And when he says here, presumably all the ladies there were hearing what they said but they mean hearing in a different way opened her heart to hear the gospel it was applied to her and she said obviously I believe she was baptized okay so there's this moving from just a, a, a work that the spirit does in the in the inward person to a conscious now life that they've they've got they understand it's actually applied it makes an, an actual difference in other words the, There's an importance on a person hearing and responding. And I think that's what we often talk about when we talk about salvation, and we talk about only this part of it. We talk about the person sitting in the pew and and hearing the gospel preached and needing to respond to that. And what we're saying is, yes, but don't ignore the eons of things that happened before that moment where they responded right, that are salvation. All the way back before the foundations of the world, Bible, the Bible tells us, to Christ's death and atonement on the cross, where He purchased that exchange of the heart for His people, all the way up to the Spirit opening their eyes to the gospel and hearing the words preached in a different way. Now to the point where they say, I actually believe that. Don't discount all the other things that are also described in the Bible as God's saving work that He does for His people up to this point. Okay, so conversion then, what we're saying about conversion, it marks, it's a, it's a line, of just a marker of the conscious beginning. Not only of the putting away of the old man, of fleeing from sin, so it's the conscious beginning. Um, So it's not only a putting away of the old man, a fleeing from sin, but also the putting on of the new man, a striving for holiness of life. So the conversion marks the beginning of that process. Notice, the putting on of the new man, putting off of the old man, that is a process you're in until you die or until Jesus comes back. All right. So, we're going to be there until that one or two of those, whichever happens first, right, of those moments. So we're going to be there for a long time, but conversion marks the beginning of that process, okay, which next week we're going to talk about sanctification, but this is the beginning of that process. It's the putting on of the new man, putting off of the old man, striving for holiness of life. So in regeneration, the sinful principle of the old life is already replaced by the holy principle of the new life. So in regeneration, That work that makes the ability to be sanctified or the ability to grow or the ability to progress in holiness makes that possible. That's already been done by the Holy Spirit. He's already changed the hearts. But the conversion marks the conscious beginning where I'm realizing that I've got to grow in holiness. So that's what we describe as conversion. Alright. So what then we have to say is that God only can be called the author of conversion. He's not only the author of the new birth or that regeneration, he's also the author of conversion. First, the clear teaching of Scripture is that God not only grants new birth, but then he accomplishes the work of restoration that follows. Look at Psalm eighty. Help me somebody. Did I not include it? Second one. Yeah, there it is. Look at that. Why did it jump up there? I don't know. For some reason it did. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. There's a requirement for God's people. They call on God. He's the one that's got to do the restoration. So not just the new birth part, he's got to change out our hearts. He's got to do the restorative act. He's got to bring us, um, he's got to bring us to him. Uh, Look at Jeremiah 31, uh, 18. Where is that one? There it is. It's right after it, isn't it? Good grief. You know what? They're all right there in an order. It is like somebody put them there, you know? Sorry, it's my first day with my new eyes. All right. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. Lamentations five twenty one. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as a, a, of old. So there's a there's a requirement on God's part to not just do the rebirth and the, the regeneration, but to actually do the restorative work, the repentant work that comes after it. So you might think, okay, well, that was the Old Testament, right? And so don't we, put, a diff- we don't put the Old Testament in a different category sometimes? I don't think we necessarily should as much as we do, but we do, all right? But surely this isn't a New Testament thing. Well, actually, the New Testament reiterates that it's God who also grants the repentance and belief so that we receive the salvation that he has also granted. So look at, as an example, Acts eleven eighteen. 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So, so, Let's pause for a second and understand what's happening in that scene that's, that's tremendously important. Peter has gone to Simon the Tanner's house, uh, a Jew. And he has gotten wind that some Gentiles are coming to, to talk to him, and he got wind by Jesus. Jesus lowered a blanket down with all kinds of unclean animals on them, and he said, take and eat. And Peter was like, Pfft. This is a test. I'm going to pass this test. All right. Never will I eat things that are unclean. I mean, in fairness to Peter, they were snakes. So, ugh. Uh, Who wants to eat that? I'm not Bear Grylls. Come on, Lord. Uh, So, but he says, but the Lord responds to him and says, don't call what I have made clean unclean. So, at about that time here's a knock at the door, and it's a whole slew of Gentiles. Not just Gentiles, but it's a Roman soldier. And so he says to Cornelius, he's telling him what the gospel is. Cornelius has gotten word that he knows the gospel. Tell it to me. I'm supposed to come here and hear this. So Peter tells him the gospel, and him and all of his men fall out and start speaking in tongues. (laughs) And And Peter goes... (laughs) What? (laughs) You're not supposed to do that. You're Gentiles. And at, at some point along the way, we're not told exactly when, the dream and what's happening now connected. And he started to realize what the Lord is doing here. And he says, well then, to the Gentiles, God has also granted repentance that leads to life. And so, What's happening there is not only God granting the re- act of regeneration on the inside, but then He's also granting the repentance and the works that would follow after the repentance that would, that would we would say, is the product of a saved person. That is salvation right there, right? Um, the calling on the name of the Lord, the repenting of sin, the, the confession and for Peter. Evidence that the Holy Spirit is taking up residence inside someone's life. This is, throughout Acts, and just this is not, we're not talking about speaking in tongues now, but just as an aside on that. um, In Acts, that is the evidence that the Spirit is falling on a crowd that the disciples weren't expecting or didn't know. It's basically the Spirit's way of saying, y'all are new at this, I get it, I'm going to make it really clear for you. Okay, So, That's not something that's normative, I don't think, on now into today's time. This is something that we see in snapshots in early church history around areas where the Holy Spirit is falling and the disciples otherwise wouldn't be aware of it. Is that, oh, it's evidence that the Spirit is taking up residence here. He's making it abundantly clear to us because we're new at this, all right, Uh, is a way of thinking about it. Anyway, so that becomes obvious. It's obvious that the Lord has then just, he's shown up to the Gentiles. Well, What am I going to, and so Peter is telling this to the people, to the Jews, that he's recounting the story in Acts 11. This happened in Acts 10. He's he's recounting the story in Acts 11, which we read, and they're like, Gentiles, Gentiles can't come to faith, and he's like, okay, but what do you want me to say to God? Because you want me to just go to him and say, you can't do that. You know, he's demonstrated that he's done it, And so what am I going to do but say, well, then I guess he's wanting to save a bunch of Gentiles. So, well, that's what he's going to do. And wouldn't you know, it coincides in a similar time frame with when he saves Paul and sends him to the Gentiles. All right. So he's bringing repentance and belief. But then Paul later tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.25, he's encouraging him how to correct his opponents that are in the church. He's going to preach, and, and you'll be really shocked at this. He's a young pastor going to preach in a church, and Paul is warning him about the opponents that he's going to have there. That never happens. Uh, He says, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Right. So so he's telling them, Timothy, look, just keep preaching, and just correct them gently, and perhaps God will grant them repentance. He's not talking just about the newness of of life, the regeneration that they're unconscious of. He's talking about now the the conscious part of repentance. That, too, is granted by the Lord. So, lest we say, well, the Lord grants the regeneration, maybe He does that for everybody. And then someone's able to say yes, and some are able to say no. Mind you, that contradicts what Jesus says in John 6. But let's say that was your thought. That's not true either. Because then he tells us that God also grants the repentance that then leads to life. And so he does that work too. All right. Now, I'm about to contradict myself. you ready for this? You've been wait- Some of you have been waiting for this. I know you have. Though God only is the author of conversion, there is also a certain cooperation of man in conversion. A cooperation of man in conversion. Mankind is responsible, especially as the gospel is preached to him or her, mankind is responsible to repent, believe, and demonstrate new birth by accompanying signs. Therefore, we get baptism as a command. We get good deeds as a command. We get all of these things as a command. Right? So we're going to see this in a slew of places. Um... Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way. So here's a broad call of the gospel. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts. It's a responsibility being placed on mankind to do this. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will, uh, he will abundantly pardon. Jeremiah eighteen eleven. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and, all, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one of you from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Uh, Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Ezekiel 33.11, And say to them, as I, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Acts. 7, this is a New Testament thing too. Acts 17.30 the times of ignorance uh, God overlooked. but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Uh, Romans 10:8 to 13. but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction, Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I think, perhaps, some of you have grown up in the church and have heard Calvinism on one side, Arminianism on the other. And perhaps you have been told, what will the Calvinists say to... And then they read Romans 10, right here, what I just read. Or John 3.16, for whosoever. And you go, yeah, that's right. Listen, not a Calvinist in the world disagrees with that. Not one of them. That's not what Calvinism is even saying. What we're saying is don't ignore... Everything God did before that. Here is a call of the gospel mankind is responsible to respond to. The question is, who will respond? That's what we're asking. Who will respond? Who will respond with a genuine, true yes to that? Who will respond with genuine, true repentance to that? the one whom God has opened their heart. The one whom God has opened their eyes to believe. What is your job? To share the gospel with all of them. You don't know. And we're going to talk about evangelism at the end of this, but not tonight, but at the end of this whole thing. And, and so your job is to share. Through the sharing of the gospel, that's the mechanism God uses to open the eyes, to open the heart. So who responds to your invitation of the gospel? Those whom God has foreknew. Good. I'm just, I'm at loss as to why I sin. Then I mean, you know, I received the Spirit, and it's it's through His grace that it was given to me. Right. He invited me. He filled me with the Spirit. Yeah. So, therefore, I should have the ability to walk in a way worthy of Christ. In fact, you do. I sin. Yes. So do I. But he did. Let's commiserate together, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> um, can, I, can I address that question next week? because that is exactly what we're talking about next week. Okay. Um, so we'll talk, we'll touch on it, but it's I squarely good. You will. You will wait. Uh, if I, for some reason, don't fully answer that question next week, you pin me to the wall, okay? Uh, do it. So, um, So what we're saying is that there is a responsibility of man to respond to that call of the gospel. The question is who will respond, and that's, what the rest of the Bible teaches us. So we can't just read these passages in isolation of one another. We're seeing the whole picture of how someone actually comes to salvation. And when we see the whole picture, there's a whole work that's been done underneath all of that that produces the response to that call of the gospel that you often see, or hopefully often see. All right. What? So, yes. so why make the distinction between new birth and conversion? Is that what you mean? No. Uh, I mean, just like, just a few minutes ago, you we were just we were saying, um, we have a choice. Of, uh, have you talked yourself into a confusion, or have I talked I you into know. confusion? Yeah. You're right. Because um, when, throughout history, churches have been organized in many different ways. Right? Um, And if you don't understand how someone responds to the gospel truly, is truly converted, um, and why one says yes and truly means it, and one says yes and does not. The way you will organize a worship service is designed to produce a response that isn't genuine. So, you will manipulate a million different things, manipulate people with things other than the gospel, You'll entice them by um, fun experiences, by smoke machines, by all kinds of emotional manipulation within the worship service in order to produce a response that we would call conversion. You'll then baptize them, send them out the door, and you'll say about that person, we baptized 50 people this week which, mind you, is more than Jonathan Edwards did in the whole Great Awakening, but whatever. Okay, so there should be a whole town that's like totally turning around because 50 new converts have been produced out of this church. And so you organize your worship service around it. And before long, uh, you're organizing camps for little kids. And you're telling the parents at those those camps, you're bringing the parents in early, the chaperones of the camps, and you're telling the parents, okay, here's what we're going to do, we're going to do an altar call. All right? And here's how we're going to do it. Okay, we're going to play some music that's really good, get the, get the emotions up, then we're going to bring the mood down, right? And we're going we're gonna to do that for the purpose of really getting in touch with our emotions. And then while the music's softly playing underneath, I'm going to give this little uh, emotional plea to them with the soft keyboard playing underneath. And all of that is designed for a sixth grader to come forward with his friends and say yes. So the reason that we want to understand what's actually happening here is because I know then that I'm not appealing just for your decision. I don't care as much about your decision that's being made. What what you said you did in your room or, or, or you coming down an aisle or praying a prayer. I don't care as much about that. I want to see fruit, genuine fruit, That the Holy Spirit is inside, is taking root, and is producing this conversion, right? Not just you checking a box or making a decision. So that's what I mean. When we understand the nuances here, it fundamentally changes how we understand church and what we're doing. I don't do an invitation. I'm never going to do an invitation. I would rather die by being shot in the head, execution style, then do an invitation. And there's, there are people... <laughs> I see that hand, God bless you. Um, yeah, there, there are people within this church and other churches that cannot understand why that wouldn't happen. Because in order to be a church, in order for people to come to salvation, how are they going to do that unless they walk down front? I guess the same way they've done it for 2,000 years. The Holy Spirit's going to have to change their heart. And when He does... The fruit of conversion is going to happen. Get out of the way, you can't stop it, right? So that is the purpose. That's why we have to understand the way these things work. because if you don't if you don't see what Scripture's teaching, then then we can just do whatever we want in the church. Who really cares? Look, if, if all salvation is is somebody walking down front, checking a box, praying a prayer, whatever, getting, being willing to get wet in front of a bunch of people and, and, and go through that whole thing. If that's all it is, well, then let's organize church in a way that produces a lot of that, which we can easily do. Because at Vacation Bible School, we can ask all the kids, how many of you want to go to hell? How many of you want to go to heaven? You want to suffer for all of eternity? Or you want to be with Jesus for all eternity? If you want to be with Jesus, raise your hand. They all raise their hand we say, 85 kids got saved this week at Vacation Bible School. Do we expect that that's genuine conversion? How do we know? Why is it not? Well, unless there's a regeneration that has to happen first, in which case conversion is a fruit that follows after that. Well, if we understand it that way, I can't produce that in the kids. I can produce a decision. I can, right now. we got kids in here. I can produce a decision if I wanted to. But that's not what we're after. But in order to understand why we're not after that, we have to understand how it works, right? And so you you have to understand it is necessary that someone responds and confesses their sins. But that's going to happen as a result of what the Spirit does in their heart, if it's genuine. But why are we preaching if the Spirit's going to do all the work? Next week. Be here. So, uh, yeah, yeah, right. So, so I'll I'll briefly touch on your question because I I do want to finish the worksheet, or we won't do that next week because we'll be finishing this worksheet next week. Um, God has has decreed that the means by which He awakens the heart is through the preaching of the gospel. And the reason for that is, go back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? Did he just go? He spoke it. So, God has always, always created through his spoken word. So, what he says in the New Testament is, not only am I equipped with my word, not only am I putting my word in the mouth of the prophets to create, not only am I putting my word in incarnation, in flesh, in Christ, now I'm putting my word in the hands of all of my disciples that you can go out and with this word of the gospel, you can speak it and through it, I will create a new people, right? It's New creation. Okay, so suffice it for now. I don't. I don't want to just leave you hanging on that altogether. Um, Okay, so uh, let's go to uh, its point. Its subpoint one, two, three on the back. However, starting with however, it should always be remembered that although cooperation of man is emphasized in conversion it always results from and is perpetuated by the work of God in man. The work of God in man. Philippians 1.29. So, so we're balancing, we're holding in tension two things, right? There's what we just saw. Whoever confesses, whoever believes, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What Paul says. Affirm all of those things. That's great. Yes. But we hold that with these other things that say, Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, that's the first thing that's been granted, but also to suffer for His sake. Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Just before that, He says, work out your salvation. You've got, you, have, you have the Spirit dwelling within you, you've got to work. We're going to talk about that next week. But it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It's hard to get around that. Acts sixteen fourteen. Am I in Acts 16, 14 yet? Yes. Yes. Um, oh, we just read that about Lydia, yep. John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Ephesians 2, 8-10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It, what is he talking about there? It actually, in Greek, refers back to uh, grace and faith, both of them together. It is the gift of God. These both together are not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The grace and the faith, they're gifts of God. No one can boast. It's His doing. Why? Look at 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, hold on to your hats, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, break that down, and that will, be, that will cook your brain until it's well done. All right? We are His workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. Thank you, Lord, for recreating me. I'm going to go do these good works. I prepared beforehand these works that you should walk in them. You can't escape it. All right. All um, right. So God regenerates His unbelieving children. If I'm going to sum these kind of up, let's do it this way. So God regenerates His unbelieving children, overcoming their natural obstinacy toward the gospel through His effectual call. He gives to them the gift of repentance and belief, becoming conscious of the truth of the gospel, and thus His need for God, the truly born-again man or woman, responds in confession, repentance, and trust. This distinguishes the true convert from the man who aims at superficial moral improvement. So in other words, it stops a person in their tracks from saying, I'm working hard, I want to do this, I'm trying everything that I can. That's not what we're after, you understand, Those are all empowered acts that come as a result of salvation, as a result of the Spirit dwelling within. So you cannot hear me say from the pulpit, or I don't want you to hear me say from the pulpit. If you want Jesus, you just need to be better. Keep trying harder. That doesn't work because that's not how good works actually take place in the life of a believer. What happens first is a substitution of heart. Look, if it happened that you could just do good things, we wouldn't need the New Testament you understand. We wouldn't need the promise of a new covenant at all because here's the law, obey it just do these things well just don't drink curse, smoke or chew and don't date women that do, right? (laughs) That's all there is to it but that's all superficial improvement The only improvement that actually honors God or is pleasing to God is improvement, good deeds that are built first on the foundation of a substituted heart that God gives and genuine regeneration and conversion that happens after that where a person actually confesses their sin and understands their need for Christ. At which point, then, good works are pleasing to the Lord. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's all superficial improvement. All right. So, sanctification, which we're going to spend next week mostly on, sanctification, this next point, becomes the primary endeavor in which the born again convert is engaged in for the rest of his or her Christian life. Sanctification is that process that Millie's talking about where she says, but I struggle. You do, thing, you do good things, surely, that are pleasing to the Lord, right? But then there are things that you struggle with and that are sinful. So the endeavor that we're in for the rest of our life is that struggle between uh, actually killing sin that's on the inside and actually doing righteous things that God demands of us. That's that's the process of sanctification. We're in that for the rest of our life. And it consists fundamentally and primarily in a divine operation of the soul. So so God actually has to do an operation in the soul for that to even begin. The new nature is then given and regeneration is and then re, then that regeneration is strengthened, it becomes conscious, somebody understands, oh my goodness, I get what they're saying now, I have to repent of sin, and I, I need to live a righteous life. They're converted. And then that, that process of where that is strengthened is the process of sanctification that we engage in for the rest of our life, or until Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. right? So it's essentially a work of God, though in as far as He employs means, man can and is expected to cooperate by the proper use of these means. So all of these scriptures here, Paul is going to say, do it. Do it. You need to do it. You, and I'm, you're going to hear me. You, you need to do this. I'm not talking to the unbeliever primarily. When I say you need to obey Christ, I'm, I'm primarily not talking to the unbeliever. I'm talking to the believer. You need to obey. Because now the, unbelie- the believer has been given a nature that is contrary to their carnatal, carnal nature. They actually have the ability to obey and please God, but listen to how Paul describes this in Galatians six twenty. Uh, sorry, Galatians two twenty. Um, somebody point me to it. Oh, there it is, second one, on the fifth page. Uh, so f- page five, up towards the top, second one from the top. I have been, y'all know this verse. I have been crucified with Christ. Listen to what he says, though. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you understand what he's saying there? When I do things positively when I please God it's not really fair to say that it's me doing it. See I wouldn't do that unless supernaturally God had given me a new nature. So, it's not I, it's Christ that lives in me that's doing that. If you see anything in me that is pleasing to God, that's not me. That's Christ that lives in me. Me is a wretched sinner. But Christ that lives in me is doing these things. That's, that's an interesting phrasing, isn't it? The way he describes his, his life in faith. Okay. So, moving quickly here. Um, this sanctification consists of two parts. This may begin to address where Millie is talking about, so hopefully it won't totally leave you hanging. It consists of two parts. The mortification, that is the killing, of the old man, the body of sin, and the quickening of the new man created in Christ Jesus for good works. Mortification, quickening. It should never be presented as, mere, as a merely natural process in the supernatural development of man. Natural process. Nor brought down to the m- level of mere human achievement. So natural and human natural, and human. Those Here, two Here's what that's saying. The process you're in now, which is where we're going to spend most of our time next week, the process you're in now, if you're in Christ, this has happened to you. You've been born again. You have been converted. The process that you're in now is killing the sin that dwells in you, and it's living to Christ, putting on the new man. Now, Here's, here's this, what that second bullet point is saying. We can't just say, oh, it's going to happen. Just relax. No, no, no. You have to do it. You actually have to wake up and do it. You have to employ the means necessary to grow. It is your responsibility. It is empowered and provided by the Lord, yes. It is supernaturally decreed by God. Your growth, yes. All those things are true. It doesn't remove your responsibility from it. You have to do it. So we can't just say, oh, it's a natural process. It's part of the normal spiritual development of a man. Nor can we say, it's all on your own strength. It's mere human achievement. We're not Rocky Balboa, running up the steps. That's not what we're saying either. This is a work that the Spirit does in His people, but you are responsible to wake up every morning and employ the everyday means of grace, of the reading of Scripture, of the prayer, of going to church and being with brothers and sisters and listening to teaching, and and you're responsible for those things. And those things are the ways that that spirit that new nature grows questions very quickly obviously sorry i dealt with a lot of questions early on okay just there you go so any any other questions a lot to take in maybe if you, what process Uh, maybe, so the question was, if you don't respond to that process, the reading of the word, the going to church, you, you don't do that at all then it's is it not regeneration, maybe, yeah, uh, so if somebody sits in my office and they and they say to me they say well um, i I think I'm a Christian and I want to follow Christ i don't really have time to go to church, i don't really want to read my bible uh, i don't um, you know, I don't really have a desire to pray. Um, I don't really understand any of that, whatever. That may be because they're not regenerate at all. Um, it can also be because they're immature. And let's be honest. When, when you have put to you an hour and a half worship service, 45 minutes of singing and prayer, and 45 minutes of preaching doesn't tickle a lot of people's funny bones, right? It's not the most marketable length of a worship service. And yet, what we think is that people will grow under it. And the people that would say initially, I'm bored by that, I don't want to be in there, it may be that genuinely, it's they're not born again, and they have no desire to read the Word, to study. It may also be because they're immature, and... The more you give them of the preaching and the reading and the understanding of the word and prayer and things like that, the more they grow and the more they desire it and develop an appetite for it. And um, so that's why we always say we try to be as humble as possible in church discipline by saying we, we can't say someone is definitively not in the kingdom of God. What we can say is, I don't think you are. And you're not giving any evidence that you are. And so we can't in any way affirm that you're a Christian. You may be, but you definitely need to repent, right? That's what we're saying in church discipline. We're not saying, you're going, you're in hell. You're going to hell. You're not a Christian. So we have to be a little bit humble about it and say, I don't know, but it may be that you're mature. It may be that you're not regenerate at all. The only way to know is why don't we start reading the Bible together and let's see if your appetite for it grows, right? Does that make sense? A little bit more sense, Some. Well, let's pray and then let's be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a time together. Together, and uh, this these subjects are tough. They are really tough to wrap our mind around and reconcile the scriptures that are before us. and And I pray that I fairly represented the text that's in front of us, all the text, the text that uh, that you know might uh, that needs to be held in tension with with the other texts, not just the texts that are favorable and easy to read, but the texts that are difficult to understand and and things like that. I pray that I've fairly represented those, and and that as we have read them and understood them and tried to wrestle with these concepts, that you would help them to seep in. And may the result of this actually be uh, a humble people who recognize that this has been your grace and your mercy to us all along, and that we have been acted upon by your Spirit um, with an abundance of grace. And that we are just so fortunate to be here. And I pray that it would produce a humble people that love you and that really admonish others and encourage others to follow the Lord and to, to follow Christ with everything that they have. And that we would be ki- kind of people that come alongside each other and help each other, recognizing that none of us are perfect. We have all been acted upon by the same grace and mercy that you have shown each and every one of us throughout history. So we're grateful for that, and we pray that that was what it would produce in us. In Jesus' name, amen.